Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest today is journalist Mark Mehmet. He was the Standards and Practices Editor at NPR from 2014 to 2019. He played a major part in designing NPR's Code of Ethics. Uh, previous to that, when reporter Jack Kelly was suspected of fabricating stories at USA Today, Mehmet was secretly assigned to investigate Kelly. Mehmet spoke to USU's Mass Communications Ethics class yesterday. He'll join us today to talk about issues of media ethics, including NPR's recent decision to permit journalists to participate in Black Lives Matter protests. Mark Mehmet is a journalist, freelance editor, a consultant. In his 40-year career, he's worked for USA Today, NPR, and the Texas Newsroom, which is a collaboration between NPR and stations in Texas. Mark Mehmet, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, coming on. Uh, appreciate you uh, presenting to USU students as well yesterday. Um, so Always glad to. Yes, uh, this is the upcoming generation. I- I'm wondering uh, what got you into journalism? What did you, what, what attracted you? Well, I grew up uh, in western New York in a family that got a morning newspaper delivered, got uh, two evening newspapers delivered, uh, watched the evening news. Uh, my father watched the Sunday talk shows. Um, so I was surrounded by news from a very young age and just always enjoyed um, reading and listening. And so when I went to college in Albany, New York, um, got involved in the student newspaper and and just enjoyed it. And, and uh, then latched on to a newspaper career that lasted, as you said, for quite a while. Um, but eventually um, found my way to NPR, which was a, a fascinating twist, sort of mid to late career, um, but fun. And I just think it's just fascinating. It's, it's, it's important. You know, we seek the truth to, to give people the information they need to be better citizens. Um, it's just a way that I found that I could, I hope, um, contribute a little bit to, um, to society. Well, we're going to talk about media ethics, and uh, that necessarily involves us in talking about uh, where media has fallen down and uh, tried to correct itself, right? Uh, but uh, I thought it was it was good. Uh, I'd like to have you do this again today in your presentation to students. You started out with some positives. Maybe you could list off some positives. You say there's a lot of positives happening with the media today. Well, yes, there there is a lot of good work going on. I mean, uh I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm just promoting NPR, but um, look back at last week's interview that Stevensky did with uh, the former president and the way he firmly, uh, politely, not shouting, but pushed, prodded um, uh, the president uh, and didn't allow uh, him to just flatly uh, make claims and accusations and lies and mis- mis- misleading uh, statements, which, whichever phrase you prefer but push back with the facts. Um, and there's a lot of that kind of reporting going on today in a lot of different kinds of media. And there's important local reporting going on. You look at what you all did just yesterday, um, you know, broadcasting from the opening of the legislative session. I mean, that kind of work is getting people the information they need um, to know what's going on that will be important to their lives. Um, there's uh, all sorts of interesting stuff going on in the podcast world. Um, not just by NPR, but by a variety of different outlets. There's a, there's I'll, I'll, I'll promote one a little bit. There's a there's a really good podcast uh, on Vox uh, called Today Explained, and the title pretty much sums up what it what it is about. Um, they take an interesting topic and each day explain it, talking to to experts, talking to people who are involved in the in the issue. Um, and then you look at all the 
the fun, important, sometimes gripping and, and, and often uh, disturbing, frankly, work being done in video uh, by interesting uh, places, New York Times, NPR, USA Today, Washington Post. Um, some of the videos that, that those outlets produced uh, showing what happened last January 6th um, have just been uh, fascinating and compelling and important for people to see what really went on. You, uh, I know uh, you tweeted out here recently, you, uh, you talked about, you, you praised, as you did earlier in this broadcast, uh, Steve Inskeep, for his uh, interview with the, uh, the former president, and you talked about the truth sandwich. I wonder if you'd talk about that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good phrase. I don't know who perhaps coined it first. It might have been Margaret Sullivan, who covers the media for the Washington Post and is a former New York Times uh, public editor, but the but the idea is that um, you know on all sides of all issues there are those who will try to frame stories or frame what they refer to as facts, and they may not necessarily be holding to the truth. So it's up to the media often, and and as Steve did with his interview of the, of the former president, um, instead of just asking open ended questions that allow someone to spin and evade and and mislead. Um, Start with the facts. Start with the truth. Um, and then the sandwich, the middle part, is the person uh, trying to make their case. But come back, especially if they have misled or, or misstated, uh, come back, the reporter, the host, come back with the truth again. So you've sandwiched that person's um, uh, misleading uh, statements with the truth. The idea is uh, you know, we've seen all these studies that uh, the more a lie gets repeated, um, the more it sort of sets into people's minds. Um, the idea is that if you start with the truth, you hopefully will be able to, at least in that case, in that instance, uh, prevent the, the lie, the misleading, the spinning from being cemented in someone's mind. What they hopefully will come away remembering are the, the, the truth, the, the bread around the, around the filling, if you will, that was the truth. Um, I, I, I'm guessing, I'm pretty sure you would have had discussions internally at NPR um, about uh, to use the word exaggerate or mistake or lie. <laughs> uh, I think all media had to do this in recent years. Uh, I wonder if you talk a little bit about that, what the discussions were, you know, or how you work through that. Sure. Um, you know, it was... Um there was there were interesting discussions going on in 2015, 16, uh, and then uh, after uh, President Trump was inaugurated. You know the traditional um, uh, rule, if you will, uh, and, and, and or guidance, if you will, in newsrooms was, boy, you don't want to um, um, unload a word like lie um, without very careful consideration. It's a very loaded word. Um, you have to, and in some way or in, in some sense, perhaps, often you need to be able to, to read the mind of the person. Um, you know, a, a lie is an intentional um, misstatement, um, and you may not know what was really in that person's mind, whether what they really and truly believe. On the other hand, though, once uh, uh, the facts have been established, um, and if you go right back to the former president's inauguration, and that day, the claims made by his press secretary 
um, that it was the largest crowd uh, in inaugural history and, and, and other such statements. When you could see pictures uh, comparing uh, inaugural crowds, um, that that clearly was not the case. When those sort of things are repeated over and over, the discussion in the newsroom was at some point, um, you need to you need to establish that no, that is a that is a lie. It's not true. The facts show. Um, so, uh, in in those cases, you know, there's careful consideration. There's much discussion about uh, um, how far and when you should apply a word like that. Um, and there's a caution, to, you know, use it judiciously because. Uh, it is a very heavy word. It's a it's a, it's something that you don't want to just uh, throw out there. Um, but if it meets the test of then repeat it over and over, clearly establish that it's not the truth. Um, you need to be able to say a lie is a lie, uh, and that's kind of the way that at least the newsroom at NPR worked through it. I'm sure there were similar discussions in, in other credible news organizations' uh, newsrooms. I want to talk about the kind of the, the, the broader scope and then uh, focus in on uh, media ethics. Uh, of course, one of the main reasons for media ethics, right, to, to, um, honesty, fairness, uh, accuracy, um, impartiality, is to, is to maintain trust with, with your listeners, I guess in this case, NPR. Um, but how do you navigate that in, in a world where, you know, there's a certain percentage, for example, just down to go, I have friends who tell me, um, I just don't trust uh, anybody but Fox, uh, <laughs> including, they're a little less likely to not trust NPR, but I have friends who say, including NPR, I don't trust them. Um, uh, how do you, you know, at, at USA Today or NPR or any outlet, how, how do you navigate that? Well, and you know, in some sense, you just need to keep doing your work. Um, uh, you know, there's a famous... Uh, quote from the former editor of the Washington Post, you know, we're not at war, we're, we're at work uh, when it comes to being the enemies of the administration or when it comes to, to trying to convince people that that um, you're, you're incredible. Um, you need to just show every day that you're out there seeking the truth. I mean, journalism, I think we say in, our, in the NPR Ethics Handbook, something along the lines of, you know, journalism, uh, is a process. Uh, it's every day trying to paint a better picture of the truth, um, collecting the facts, presenting them, um, and, and, you know, establishing what is and, and what has and what has not happened. But also, and, and I know this is a this is a double-edged sword. Being willing to be very transparent about when you make a mistake. Um, I realize that critics. You know, we'll jump on a news organization when they post a correction, when they, uh, on the rare occasions when they have to retract a story, or, or when they find that a reporter has been um, um, uh, over years, perhaps sometimes, um, fabricating, and they need to, to you know, uh, investigate themselves, if you will. Um, but I would make the case that that shows that the news organization and credible ones do this. Um, are willing to to own up to their mistakes, and they don't try to uh, spin them. Um, they don't try to hide them. Um, they're out there for people to see, and and I just have to trust that over time, if people see that this news organization uh, is making a good faith effort to get things right the first time, 
and most of the time does. Uh, but on the occasions when it messes up, which we are all human and we will, uh, it messes up and and doesn't try to hide it, shows it, um, and moves on and tries to do better. Uh, that's the only way I can think of to try to keep establishing trust um, while in, in a way sort of showing and teaching and, and making people more informed uh, news consumers, if you will. Uh, and we just have to keep doing it. And, and over time, I'm hopeful um, that those numbers on the polls about trust in the media will begin to will begin to turn. I want to before we go to break. I wanted to take this from that our headline that we uh, the, that we uh, had at the beginning of the the program here, and uh, that is the the news that uh, NPR journalists are uh, now permitted to. To, to join protests, I guess in some cases and with the with some some rules, um, how do you take us through that? Uh, because one of the you know one of the core values I'm uh, I'm reading the uh, NPR Ethics Handbook here. One of the core values is impartiality. Um, well, I'll uh, first just as a uh, I'll, uh, I wasn't involved in the meetings that led to the the tweaking of the ethics uh, policies on that. But I am familiar with how those meetings went. Um, I should establish first off that um, it isn't a radical change, in my view, from what um, NPR's thinking and guidance had been. Uh, I mean, we had long said that there are some kinds of demonstrations, some kinds of issues in, in which journalists can take uh, positions on the First Amendment. Uh, support of the First Amendment, uh, for instance, um, and, and access to information, things like that. Um, over the years, as, as other issues had come up, um, we had sort of applied that uh, the test of, well, is this a basic human right? Um, is, it, is it something that, uh, you know, you can't really argue against? So, for instance, um, over time, uh, as gay pride festivals uh, became uh, more popular, uh, or, or at least more prevalent. Um, you know, there, it just became silly to say that uh, gay, lesbian uh, journalists couldn't go to a festival and celebrate. With the caveat, and this is where sort of the tweak from last year comes in, with the caveat that if, if the uh, festival or the event becomes a political uh, demonstration, a vote this person out, a vote for this uh, uh, city council uh, uh, agenda item, etc. That's where the journalist should uh, quietly step away, you know, physically and, 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 and also sort of uh, metaphorically. Um, with Black Lives Matter, um, I know the discussions went, well, of course Black Lives Matter, and of course uh, uh, not being discriminated against um, is a basic human right that uh, even a journalist um, should be able to uh, express uh, their views, their support for. Now, if a demonstration is called to specifically um, uh, call for the removal of Governor so-and-so or Senator so-and-so, um, that's a place where a journalist shouldn't participate because then you're getting into the the active sort of debate and people taking positions etc and that's something we cover we don't 
uh, participating in. But when it's a basic human right that people are, are expressing their 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 concern about, their support for, et cetera, um, you know, journalists are people too, and they and they can uh, they can take part in that way. So, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter would be an example. I think uh, you would hope people would say the basic human right, right? Um, Black yeah. Lives Matter. But it has, you know, it's in, in some circles, it's controversial, right? And and sure. so the, the, a person who opposes uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protest uh, might see, oh, this journalist attended that, uh, you know, that march, and therefore that person cannot be impartial. What would you say to that? Well... Um, I under I understand the argument. Um, I would hope that the journalist's work could, uh, could show and establish that they aren't biased. Um, you know that they didn't uh, then turn around and uh, 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 advocate on a particular bill, a particular campaign, etc. Um, that their publication or or station or or website. Um, wasn't taking partisan uh, positions, but was expressing um, support for basic human rights. Um, and I realize that some people will look at it and just say, well, okay, I don't, just do not trust that person. But it sort of goes back to what I was saying about uh, trust in the media, which we just keep doing our job the way we should. Um, I'm hopeful, and I, and I may be Pollyannish, um, hopeful that over time people will realize that um, yeah, you know, they can do the job while, while also um, expressing some views on basic human issues. Well, let's take that break that uh, we're overdue for. Uh, we are uh, talking about uh, the media and specifically media ethics. We're talking with journalist Mark Mehmet. Uh, he's a journalist, freelance editor, consultant. He's worked for USA Today, NPR, Texas Newsroom. Um, and uh, from 2014 to 2019, he was Standards and Practices Editor at NPR. Uh, he presented to uh, USU uh, Mass Communication Ethics students yesterday, and he's joining us on the program today. We'll have much more following this break. Support for UPR's 2022 Utah legislative coverage is made possible in part by our members and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan organization for individuals to live their best life by providing programs and advocacy on key issues. Information about becoming an AARP advocate, receiving a newsletter and email action alerts at aarp.org slash get involved. This is Science by the Slice. The periaqueductal gray is a partially uncharted region of the brain. USU biologist Aaron Bobeck and her students are investigating a newly identified G-protein coupled receptor in this area of the brain called GPR-171. The receptor's role, they say, appears to be enhancing the pain-reducing effects of the brain's opioid receptors. Their findings could help efforts to develop safer alternatives to highly addictive opioid drug therapies. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about media today and uh, media ethics. Journalist Mark Mabbitt is with us. He was Standards and Practices Editor at NPR from 2014 to 2019. Played a major role in designing NPR's Code of Ethics. Uh, when reporter Jack Kelly was suspected of fabricating stories at USA Today, Mabbitt was secretly assigned to investigate Kelly. Uh, definitely want to have you tell that story, Mark Mabbitt. But uh, first, I want to uh, talk about a, a thorny issue of balance or perception of balance. Um, so under the, I'm reading from the NPR handbook, uh, you can find that in, uh, what ethics.npr.org. Um, so fairness, I'll just read a little bit from this. In all our stories, especially matters of controversy, we strive to consider the strongest arguments we can find on all sides, seeking to deliver both nuance and clarity. Our goal is not to please those whom we report on or to produce stories that create, uh, or to report to produce stories that create the appearance of balance, but to seek the truth. So I want to have you talk a little bit about balance. Uh, one example I'll give is climate change. Um, I have I have had friends, uh, professors, uh, you know, before we went on the air, uh, asked me to assure them uh, this isn't going to be a 50-50 program, is it? <laughs> For example, because in the, from their, their view, uh, 50-50 on climate change, uh, that, that doesn't get at the truth. Um, that's just one example. I wonder if you talk about uh, balance, trying to get it balance and the perception of balance. Yeah, the climate change is uh, always brought up as the classic example of an issue where you don't want false equivalency. In other words, you know, if something is established, if the if the scientific evidence is overwhelming, you don't need to spend half the story. Uh, knocking it down with uh, uh, theories or, and I'm air quoting here, evidence that doesn't um, stand up to the to the, to the truth. Um, that at some point, some issues, some some subjects uh, become fact, and facts do matter. And and it would be uh, it wouldn't be honest. It wouldn't be helpful um, to the audience to spend uh, an uh, inordinate amount of time on the, quote, other side of the issue. Um, now, but, yes, you do want to be fair, and you do want to be balanced in the sense that you're open, and you report out, and you're aware of the arguments on all sides. Um, you're aware of, of what is the solid evidence, what is not. And you are making judgments, and, and journalists, you, you know, uh, down the middle, uh, journalists do make judgments on on you know, uh, uh, what to report, um, how to report, um, how to uh, shape, frame their stories. But you want those judgments to be based on fairness, accuracy, honesty, um, and 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 be able to show through the course of your reporting that yeah, we've we've looked at this from all different sides. Here's the story. Here's the truth. Here are the facts. Uh, and and you know, you're right to bring up climate change. It's the classic example of one where um, you know the evidence is overwhelming, um, and we need to be clear with people about that um, and give them then the information they need to uh, you know to, for instance, um, you know, what can I do in my life to help to um, limit the effects of uh, you know, human uh, emissions on uh, the climate. Um, so it's back to um, doing your due diligence, doing your reporting, and then presenting the facts uh, in a fair, balanced, but not 
not in a false equivalent um, sort of way. If you just joined us, we're talking with Mark Mabbitt. He's a journalist and uh, editor, consultant, and uh, he was Standards and Practices Editor at NPR uh, from 2014 to 2019. Before that, he worked at uh, USA Today, and that's what I wanted to get into uh, now. Of course, he did a lot of work at USA Today, but a famous a famous case is uh, your role in investigating uh, a reporter who uh, came to be suspected of fabricating stories. In fact, that turned out to be the case. Uh, we're talking about Jack Kelly. So, um, uh, attending your presentation yesterday, I learned that um, it, it was after the Jason Blair incident, right, that uh, USA Today uh, thought, uh, I wonder if we've got any problem in our organization. Is that the case? Yeah, it was in um, spring of 2003, as I recall. Uh, Jason Blair, a reporter at the New York Times, um, had been fabricating some facts in his stories, including some about, you might recall, the, um, the, the sniper um, shootings around the, the Washington, D.C. area. Um, in the, uh, and this was after 9-11. Um, and he had been inventing some facts and some details and, and, in fact, hadn't even been to some of the places um, that he had claimed to have been. When he reported it, and it was a it was a major major story. Obviously, New York Times, being the uh, the institution that it is, having to um, uh, report out this uh, this sad tale about a reporter's uh, malfeasance. Um, so, other news organizations, I'm sure USA Today wasn't the only one, but other news organizations were paying close attention to what happened, why it happened, how the Times handled it, um, and the Times was excellent, by the way, in, in explaining what had happened, why it happened, um, and detailing where the stories had been made up. Um, so the one of the uh, top editors at USA Today uh, basically sent a message to the staff. You know, we, we know everyone's uh, seeing this story. You know, everyone's uh, uh, worried about uh, what this will mean in terms of the media and its credibility. Wanna want you to be assured that um, we take accuracy and all of that very seriously. If you have any concerns about any of the reporting that's been done at USA Today over the years, please let us know. Uh, an anonymous note appeared, I think, literally under the door of the executive editor uh, soon after, um, suggesting uh, that uh, this reporter, uh, Jack, had, had been fabricating um, some stories uh, uh, over the years. I had just gotten back uh from a reporting assignment in Iraq and was asked by the, the editors if I could quietly um, look at, I think it was nine of the cover stories Jack had written over the, over the preceding five or six years, um, and, and see if there were any problems with, with them. Uh, and I have to say that and neither I don't think neither the editors nor I um, expected what we would find. Um, it, Jack was a, a beloved person in the newsroom. Um, he'd been there since the newspaper's founding. Um, he was a friend to all. But um, as I began um, looking into, and, and Jack shared with me some of you know, his sources and things like that, where he'd been, but as I began looking into it, I began to find that no people who he had claimed he had met um, and interviewed said, no, I didn't give him that information, or no, I didn't 
Um, I don't recall ever meeting him. Um, I began to find, uh, once we pulled expense reports and things like that, that um, he had expensed being in one place when he claimed he was reporting from another. Um, you know, you know, hotel records showed, for instance, that he was making calls and, and, and having room service in one place when he had written, reported that he had been uh, hundreds of miles somewhere else. Um, so I found, um, and in travels, I went to, to Belgrade, I went to Cuba um, to try to track down some things and found people who, would, uh, who helped me sort of establish the facts, if you will, of what he had and had not um, seen uh, and where he had and had not been. Um, we... Uh, I passed that information on. We, uh, Jack was uh, removed from the staff, if you will, and I passed my information on to others for a bigger, more thorough investigation, and they eventually, uh, the USA Today was very sort of forthcoming with a two-page uh, look at many, many more of Jack's stories um, and, and found uh, problems uh, throughout. Um, it was a terrible time at the paper. Um, people were torn uh, between their friendship or someone who they had known for years and uh, these these revelations, if you will. Um, top Two top editors lost their jobs. Um, mostly you know, they were the ones who were, who were there at the time. Other editors who had gone before them who had um, uh, handled uh, some of his work were gone, so there was nothing to be done with them, but um, I think the, the investigations certainly showed that it wasn't just um, those editors who were there uh, in 2003, 2004, who had, had dropped the ball. It was editors um, before them as well. But, um, you know, the, the plus side is it showed, once again, uh, as I was saying before, that credible news organizations, um, when they make mistakes, even huge ones, they don't, they don't cover them up. They um, dig in. They investigate, they report the facts, and they give that uh, those facts to the public. Um, I know it. You know, I'm sure it, uh, USA Today's credibility took a hit then, but I think over the long over the long run, it helped um, establish USA Today's credibility as a serious organization that was going to take something like that incredibly seriously um, and be as transparent as possible about it. I wonder, before I ask you lessons uh, from, from this, uh, there were a couple of lessons that you draw. Uh, what about you personally? This must have been a, I don't know, quite the assignment. Uh, investigative reporting, but you're investigating your own reporter. Oh, I was both the worst and the best assignment, you know, that I've ever had. Um, the worst in the sense that as I found more and, and realized that um, not only was a friend, um, uh, had I found things about a friend that I wish I never had, but it was also going to hurt the institution that I that I worked for, um, at least in the short term. And uh, it and in the initial um, weeks, it also um, basically split the staff between those who just couldn't believe that um, he had ever done such a thing, and those who were outraged. Um, and I was sort of in the middle of all that, so um, that was pretty bad. Um, I'm, in the end, proud of the work, not just that I get things going and, and 
but the work that USA Today did um, in the subsequent investigations and the way they they um, truthfully, transparently um, reported about what had happened. And so that would be on the best side of, uh, if you will, of an assignment um, that I had. And probably... Um, because of my work on that, led eventually to me getting more deeply involved into um, media ethics and two positions like standards and practices editor at at NPR, which was a pretty good gig. Yeah, and I want to talk about that uh, and how that came about. But um, it was interesting your your presentation yesterday. You said one of the lessons learned uh, from this, and I'm sure other uh, like stories, is editors need to be prosecutors. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, yeah, there's an expression, um, I didn't coin this one either, uh, prosecutorial editing. Um, you need to, an editor's job isn't just to, you know, uh, check the grammar and, and uh, hit publish. Uh, you know, an editor's job is to make the story better, to help us to, to help a reporter frame the story, and to, um, and to check that the reporter... Uh, you know, if the reporter is, is 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 making conclusions, that those conclusions make sense, that they have the facts to back them up, and that they have the facts right. Um, so, uh, what had happened over the years at USA Today is um, uh, the editors had not done enough of that kind of due diligence, um, and, and they hadn't um, questioned how are you sure about that? Are you uh, how did you get there? Um, uh, uh, it, does this make sense? And, and they also hadn't done um, a very basic thing, which um, uh, in retrospect, I understand why not, um, because they trusted their reporter. Um, and, and, and it seems a little sort of um, you know, investigate, uh, you know, like, like internal police, but they hadn't just cross-checked um, expense reports against um, dates or, 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 or anecdotes in the stories. Um, if someone had, um, years before, um, perhaps uh, he would have explained it away, but um, it would have raised some red flags, I think, to see that there were expenses being booked for this date, uh, which was the date that uh, the story says um, the reporter was somewhere else. Uh, would have been, uh, uh, would have been nice <laughs> if if that had been discovered. Um, those flags had been raised long before. Um, and a lot of a lot of grief might have been uh, prevented. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we are talking with Mark Mamet. He's a journalist, uh, editor, a consultant. Uh, he was uh, previously. Uh, the Standards and Practices Editor at NPR. Following break, let's uh, hear that story, how that came about. We didn't always have a Standards and Practices Editor, um, and uh, we'll, we'll hear that story when we come back. Um, we are talking about media and media ethics, and we'll have more following this break. Support for UPR's 2022 Utah legislative coverage is made possible by our members and the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice. Utah's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. More information at cpd.usu.edu. 
And Utah legislative coverage is also supported by the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. Governor Spencer Cox will deliver the annual State of the State Address to a joint session of the Utah Legislature this evening. He'll outline his budget for the coming year and talk about many other topics. And we'll have that address for you right here on Utah Public Radio, live at 6.30 this evening. Hope you join us. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with journalist Mark Mehmet, and uh, he worked for USA Today, worked for NPR as well. He was Standards and Practices Editor there from 2014 to 2019. He presented to USU's Mass Communications Ethics class yesterday. He's joining us uh, today to talk about media and media ethics. You're welcome to get a question or comment uh, to us uh, through our email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Mark Mehmet, uh, tell us how there came to be a NPR Standards and Practices editor. Well, it, um, it was, I believe, late uh, 2010 uh, when an issue arose at NPR. A commentator um, who um, had been with NPR for quite some time on a different um, network, where he also did some commentary, um, said something that, that NPR editors felt uh, crossed an ethical or, or um, uh, line. You know, he basically said that uh, when he's on an airplane, he sees someone in Muslim garb, uh, he feels nervous. Um, uh, NPR ties with that commentator. Uh, but questions were raised about, well, what are the standards around commentary? And, and um, um, as always happens in these sort of things, um, a task force, uh, was created to look into it, and I and, and some other journalists from both inside and outside NPR were part of that task force. Um, as often happens with task forces, we uh, we expanded our mission somewhat, uh, and because we saw that over the years, I mean, NPR obviously had a code of conduct, codes, codes of ethics, um, but they hadn't been uh, updated in a while, and there were also hundreds of, of, you know, emails uh, to staff and guidance on various issues. Uh, and they hadn't been sort of uh, collected and, and annotated or, or revised over the years. So it, it just seemed to us as if it would be um, a big help um, to try to bring together in one place uh, a, a usable, uh, living uh, document. And that's what became the NPR Ethics Handbook, which is written for the journalists at NPR. It's guidance on how to report. It's guidance on key principles like honesty and transparency and accuracy. Uh, it includes case studies of, of times when NPR um, got things wrong and, and, and how, how they addressed it. Also, some case studies on times when they did things right and, and, and why. Um, and we made it public-facing. Uh, so that the public can see these are the principles that NPR believes in, and these, 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 this is how we think about journalism, and this is how we practice journalism. Um, the other thing that the task force uh, came to think that uh, exceeded the mission, if you will, was that it would be uh, best to have a standards and practices editor um, who could uh, 
be uh, talking to the staff, uh, communicating with the staff, issuing guidance after consultation with editors and reporters and others on uh, topics of the day, issues of the day, language, et cetera. Uh, so that, uh, that became the standards and practices position, a different position than uh, another one that NPR has, which is the public editor. Um, used to be called ombudsman, but now public editor. That's an outward-facing, if you will, position where um, the person in that uh, chair uh, is answering questions from the public, explaining things to the public about journalism and NPR, and sometimes criticizing NPR um, for for the way it uh, has handled some stories or issues. The standards and practices editor sometimes would think of it as internal police, if you will, um, someone who's uh, uh, constantly working with the staff, helping to guide, not on not on not on their own, um, in consultation with other editors, with the staff, sometimes with people at stations like yours, um, uh, to get uh, guidance and and, and, and good um, good thinking, if you will, out to the staff every day. And it's a it's a fascinating position that I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, and, and, and the person who's taken over is an experienced uh, standards and practices editor as well who came to NPR from CBS, and I'm sure we'll be um, tweaking and improving the position and, 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 and carrying on some things that we did before and probably finding new ways to help guide and shape the, the journalism of, of NPR. What, uh, what sorts of issues uh, did you deal with? Um, uh, uh, most prevalently, what are, what are the kind of the top issues, most frequently occurring issues that uh, you're dealing with as a standards and practices editor? Well, there's the almost daily discussion over, um, uh, we refer to it as tape, although, of course, it's no longer tape, it's all digital. Um, but um, things said by people and whether they um, can or cannot be broadcast because they might or might not be offensive or disturbing. Um, uh, you know, most famously, the former president um, using uh, an expletive uh, to refer to some nations in Africa. Uh, on, the, you know, on the one hand, we don't want we want to be respectful of the audience. We don't want to. Um, uh, you know, we always think of the driving the car with the little kids in the back seat, and they don't want the little kids to be hearing some things. Um, so we have to be cognizant of that. We have to be aware also that there are some FCC um, rules uh, or guidance, if you will, uh, that if you run afoul of them, uh, you know, could result in fines or, or perhaps a station losing its license if you err a certain word or phrase, things like that. So um, but on the other hand, there are legitimate editorial um, reasons sometimes for airing that kind of language. Um, you know, it depends on who's saying it, how, where it was said, when it was said, um, what the issue was, that, um, et cetera. So that that's almost a daily thing because um, uh, you know the people do speak sometimes roughly. Uh, uh, it, it, there's also the sort of uh, daily back and forth just about best language, most precise language, uh, grammar, uh, et cetera, uh, and trying to guide the staff on that. But um, 
you know, the really deeper, richer conversations, you know, are always about, you know, have we, as we were discussing earlier, um, have we fairly um, presented this story? Have we included enough um, supporting evidence, if you will? Um, does this does this comment, does this tape um, move the story along? Um, should it be trimmed because it doesn't? Um, uh, is it fair to be using this uh, quote? Uh, you know, those sort of those sort of issues. Um, and it's uh, uh, and, and you get into some other kinds of interesting discussions about you know use of music in uh, reports. Is that trying to steer the audience's mood? Should we stay away from that little bit of music between uh, between comments by someone? Or no, it's helping to make the the story more um, enjoyable. Um, there's, there's a wide variety of things that the standards and practices uh, editor gets involved in, uh, and that's why it's a fascinating job. Um, just a couple minutes left here, two or three minutes. Uh, I want to talk about the, the thorny issue for any organization, news organization. That's how do you, how do you cover yourself? Because uh, you know any organization, news organization is going to make mistakes. Uh, for example, uh, the top NPR editor was uh, fired over allegations of sexual harassment. I wonder if you talk about how how NPR, what what the rules are in place there, uh, how they cover themselves. Yes, and, and and thankfully, you know, we had thought a lot about this before uh, an unfortunate uh, case like that. Um, the, the basic procedure uh, is that NPR has, has a good media correspondent, David Folkenflik, um, and his mission is to, you know, cover the media, explain to people what's going on as media organizations, trends, people moving, problems, occasional scandals. Um and uh, NPR has made the, made the decision that he can cover NPR as well. But when he does, uh, he and his editor, and, and often two editors, are uh, basically walled off um, from others inside NPR. So top editors, top management, do not uh, interfere in, in how they report the story. Um, don't really uh, even see or hear them uh, until they're ready for air, uh, and can't uh, can't can't get in and start messing around, if you will, with the uh, with the reporting. And the thinking there is that, well, number one, they may have been involved in whatever the decision was, in case of like a uh, launching of a new show or or cancellation of a show or firing of someone. So they can't be involved in a story reporting about it. But also, we want to be very clear to the public that um, we're, we're taking steps to ensure there's some independence here. Now, you could make the case. Obviously, David is paid by NPR. He has a natural conflict. Um, I would I would make the case that he has shown over the years that that does not affect his reporting about NPR. That he is perfectly capable and has. Uh, produce some of the toughest affair uh, reporting about NPR and and what's going what has gone on there. Um, and uh, we, by the way, uh, at each uh, web version, if you will, of the stories include a few a few lines, a paragraph at the end that explain all this to uh, the public that the story has been reported by David 
edited by whoever was editing him um, at that time, um, and was not uh, uh, and did not pass through uh, senior editors or management before getting on the air and on the web. Well, we reached the end of our uh, our time. Interesting discussion. We've been talking with journalist Mark Mehmet, who was the Standards and Practices Editor at NPR from 2014 to 2019. Uh, he has worked as well at the USA Today and Texas Newsroom, among other places. Um, and uh, he presented uh, yesterday to the USU's uh, Mass Communications Ethics class. He's joined us uh, today on the program. Mark Mehmet, thank you so much for taking time. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. As many cultures once, Guy Watcher Leo T here. As we look up, look around, get lost in space. And looking up in the east after dark, we can do that by looking up very high. Find a bright capella, the goat star here. To the right of it is a small, narrow triangle of stars known as the Kids. They're not very bright, but it's worth finding. They form a magical pattern or asterism with capella. And now that the waning moon doesn't rise until about 9 p.m., this is your chance in early evening to see the winter Milky Way. Well, if you can get up to the mountains or the desert anyway, well, look low in the southeast and see it winding from the brightest star. Sirius, follow the strand up between Orion and Gemini through Auriga and the Jibble Jabble through Perseus, overhead and down through Twinkly Cassiopeia, Cepheus, and Cygnus to the northwest horizon. What a nice voyage to take with your eyes and senses. Taking the little Skywatcher ship out again to Mars, where NASA's Curiosity rover has uncovered interesting organic compounds again. Some of the powdered rock samples that Curiosity has collected over the years contain organics rich in the type of carbon found here on Earth, like at Yellowstone. But many Martian processes remain mysterious, so it's too early to know what generated the intriguing chemicals. The search goes on. You can see some intriguing photos on the Skywatcher FB page taken in front of a rock outcrop named Mont Mercou. Curiosity landed inside the Mars 96-mile-wide Gale Crater in 2012. The rover team soon determined that Gale's floor was a potentially habitable environment billions of years ago, harboring a lake and stream system that likely persisted for millions of years. James Webb Space Telescope, which is still roaring into space, has now deployed its 18 mirrors. Webb still has one more key development milestone to complete a trajectory burn that will insert the observatory into orbit around a spot in space known as Earth-Sun Lagrange Point 2, nearly one million miles away from Earth. That is some space exploration there. It's many cultures, one sky. This from Anthony Aveni and his book Star Stories. Today we head up north to visit the Inuit who live in the polar regions of Canada, Alaska, Greenland, Russia, and Denmark. There the sun is gone for two months from November to late January. To balance this out, the sun shines all the time from late May until late July. The Inuit sky is animated with tales of the hunt and the hazards of traveling over vast ice fields to secure the catch. There's a bear, a caribou, and a seal, foxes, wolves, and an oil lamp, a kayak stand, and most important of all, a late winter bringer of light, Agjuk, or the stars seen at dawn. This also signifies the biggest celebration of the year. During the extended twilight, people eat and drink to excess. They masquerade and change partners and change who they are for a while. And when they've eaten so much they're ready to burst, they rise up to play and dance and express their joy at the return of the sun to their hemisphere. Ana Aja Ahu, the welcome sun returns again. So keep celebrating life, look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space and on Earth. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR, 
Utah Public Radio, a transmitter station statewide and in parts of Idaho and Wyoming, and streaming live. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and USU Extension's Healthy Relationships Utah Initiative. Learn tips, tricks, and tools on how to strengthen your marriage, parenting, and stepfamily by registering for a course at HealthyRelationshipsUtah.org. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll dance the tango in its many forms, from the traditional bandoneon of Argentina to the pulsing electronica of the new tango of Finland and Norway. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Tango Around the World, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Here's what years of diet culture won't tell you. It's okay to eat what you're hungry for when you're hungry for it. That's what's at the heart of intuitive eating, 10 principles that guide you in healing your body and brain's relationship to food. I'm Anita Rao. Join me in conversation with two registered dietitians and a neuroscientist. It's Relearning How to Eat, a special from Embodied in North Carolina Public Radio. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.